We're going to get started, and uh, I'm excited to hear from Pastor Sergio Del Mar, my West Coast friend, Del Mar, right? Del Mar. And, I've been uh, called worse, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he is, uh, he started, he is lead pastor and founder of Cornerstone Church in San Diego, which has multiple campuses, uh, just an extraordinary church, but also I've been able to many people, I just learned this pastor, but uh, he's a, he can, he can skate the half pipe. And award-winning DJ. So next to him, I'm very white. I'm very white. But we're excited to hear from him today. My name is Jerry Boston. I started a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. You're going to have to go called Avenue Church. But I am thrilled to hear from Pastor Sergio today. He's not only a pastor, uh, he thinks outside the box, but as well as an author of, of two books. I'm working on his third one. So we give it up today for Pastor Sergio. Thanks, you guys. Why don't you stand for a word of prayer? Let's get started in prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for everything that ARC is doing for the next generation. We thank you, God, that men and women are being prepared to lead churches that give life. We thank you for life-giving churches. We thank you for life-giving ministries. And we thank you for life-giving leaders. And today, Holy Spirit, we didn't come to hear the words of a man that we came to hear from you. So, Lord, speak intuitively, speak powerfully. Let every question and need be met. And we thank you for what is yet to come. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, Amen. Amen. So, today, I'm going to be talking about the paradox of an uncommon church. The notes are on your seat. And... Um, a big portion of it is from this recent book that just came out called Paradox, The God Who Breaks the Rules. And I want to talk today basically about churches that break the rules. The churches that are uncommon, um, not because of their theology or because of their doctrine, but because of their passion and approach to doing ministry. I think what has hurt America more than ever is that we've forgotten and we need to get back to the essence of why a church exists in the community. Never before has being a pastor been so cool and hip. Uh, the average, the, the new American pastor is a million followers in social media, has the hippest haircut, has the best looking clothes, the hottest wife, coolest car, um, serves the best coffee at their church, and yet oftentimes lacks the spiritual essence to bring people to faith, to conversion, and to growth. Um, it's interesting because, you know, in the day that we live in today, it's we used to fight the, the greatest enemy of the church used to be the devil. You know, the bars and the clubs. But the truth is, is that we no longer see them necessarily as our enemy. But the enemy of the church now has become, how relevant can you be? And the truth is, the only reason why we think that that's what our enemy is, is because we don't hang around enough unsaved people. Most unsaved people don't care how hip and cool our churches are. They really don't. They really don't. You know, 
know, there was a moment and a time where you needed to have um, a church that looked modern. But the reality is, is because modernity has gone to the point where we can't outdo the billions and billions of what corporate America does to modernize their facilities and their brand. The church tries to keep up at the expense, oftentimes, of losing the one ingredient that we have that the world doesn't have, and that is the anointing of God. That can only be given to the person that spends time with God. And that is the one thing that it doesn't matter how hip and cool we are. When those people are in those seats dealing with depression and drugs and marital issues, they have to be introduced to something that not only is tangible, but something that is so powerful that when they leave, they know, I have to go back to that church. Because that's what's made our church uncommon. We are the third fastest growing church in America in 2009. In 2010, we were the 11th fastest growing church. In 2013 or 2012, we were the 14th fastest growing church. So for three years, our church grew so strong and so fast because we understood these things. And now we have multiple campuses and we're about to go into our next big uh, launch of growth again. And so I've been a pastor for full time for 13 years. Our church has been around for 20. So seven of the first years, I was bivocational. You know, our, our church maybe grew in those years of to 500 people because I came from a very small church in Santa Barbara. How many of you know where Santa Barbara is? I was born and raised there. So when they sent us from there to start the church, you know, we came from a church that had 250 people. We were a mega church. You know, we just, and anyone that had a mega church wasn't preaching a true gospel. You don't remember those days. And so, so our ride is just, it's been amazing. But it's also given us many lessons that I want to share with you. And that's the reason why I wrote this book. Erwin McManus was so generous to do the foreword. Um, if you want to really know who I am, read his foreword. He, I, I tell him all the time I should give you a, a paycheck for how you introduce me in the book. But I wrote the book for people who want to raise churches that break the norm, that don't want to just be like the other church down the street. And so the danger about being part of a really cool network like ARC is that you'll do everything that they tell you to do at the expense of losing who you are. And they never, ever would want you to do that. So remember, the anointing is on the real you, not the you you're trying to be. So we're going to get into this message and... Um, so let's start reading Luke chapter 10. So if you want to look at, have it on the, on the screen. Luke chapter 10, we'll start in verse 30. You all know the story, but I'm going to read it anyway because I have to teach from Scripture and through Scripture. I'm old school like that. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. He, he stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, 
When he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave him to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the answer, Jesus, obviously, the man said, the one who showed compassion. And so through this text, I want to talk to you about the five signs of an uncommon church. And I'm going to give them to you right away, just so that you have them, and then I'll discuss each one. Number one is uncommon passion. Churches that are known to be paradoxical in nature are, have uncommon passion. Number two, they have uncommon empathy. Uncommon empathy. Number three, uncommon discipleship. Uncommon discipleship. Number four, they operate with uncommon generosity. And number five, they have uncommon salvations. Uncommon salvations. Do you know what the average church sees in salvation a weekend? Does anyone know that number? Does anyone know the average church salvations in a year? Okay, what is the number? Zero a week. Okay. How many church planners do I have here today? How many of you want, are, are how many of you are leading a church under uh, five years? Can I see your hand? Okay. How many of you are on staff at a church? Let me see your hand. Okay. How many of you are volunteer leaders at your church? Can I see your hand? Okay. So one of the most important things that I believe that made this story so powerful is that when the Bible says, when, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the, thie- the thieves? And he showed the one who showed mercy on him. And the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Most people, when, when they read this text and it says, go and do likewise, what is it that Jesus meant when he said, go and do likewise? And this is what I want to talk to you about. It's because what Jesus, in essence, did is he saved a man who was half dead. So half dead doesn't just speak to this physical condition. You know, it means literally your job is to reach people who are half dead. They're alive physically, but they're dead spiritually. And so the truth is, is that if you're going to be an uncommon church, it's because you believe for uncommon salvations every week in your church. Like just this past weekend, we had 53 salvations at our church. Okay. Which is low for us. Okay, which is low for us. For us, you know, a hundred salvations is not uncommon. We're in a season now where we're focusing more on discipleship. So that number has changed. However, you think about this. Um, and I don't want to marginalize 53 salvations. Come on, somebody. That's 53 people. He said yes to Jesus. 53 people that are going to heaven. Yes. But I want to really challenge your view because I asked you right now, do you know how many churches and what salvations are seen? You need to know what that number is. You need to know what the ratio are of salvations. Because Jesus said, go do the same. Go find people that are half dead and breathe life into them. And so as, as I have this conversation with you about the uncommon church, it's because they have uncommon salvations, uncommon generosity, uncommon discipleship, uncommon empathy. But I want to start, number one, with uncommon passion. 
The Bible says, when the man went from Jerusalem to Jericho, they stripped him of his clothes, wounded, left him half dead. But then it says, now by chance a priest came down that road. When he saw him, he passed on the other side. So the truth is, this man was kicked to the curb. So he's on the street, and he's half dead, and he's wounded, stripped. And the problem is, is that the people that should have passion for people that have been kicked to the curb, they didn't have passion. It was the priest. And so an uncommon church is filled with people who show uncommon passion for people that are lost, broken, and hurt. But the story speaks of the priest who should have had passion because that was his job. He was anointed for people because the priest's job is to stand before heaven and earth. His job was to stand before God and people. But the irony of this story is that the priest was more secure on the sidewalk than in the street. And there are some people that are more secure on the sidewalk than in the street. They're more secure on the sidewalk of their comfort, the sidewalk of what is easy for them, the sidewalk of a nice Christian schedule than someone who has the passion to go beyond their sidewalk Christian experience and get dirty into the street. But that won't happen if you don't have passion for people. Uh, listen, people will tolerate a, a, a mediocre sermon, but it has to be passionate. People can tolerate someone whose theology is not in point yet, but they cannot stand a person who has a little passion. Because when you get in the car and you drive to go hear someone preach, they need to have more passion than you have for your job. They need to have more passion than they have for the money that they're going to make that week. So if someone comes to our church and they have to sit through a, a pastor or a leader or a communicator that has less passion than they have for what they're doing during the week, why do they want to go every week to hear someone who doesn't have passion? So do you realize that most people that come to our churches, they're stripped, they're broken, they're half dead somewhere in their life. That's why they inconvenience themselves to get the kids in the car and go to the church. But when they're there, they need to know that they're being introduced to someone that is so passionate about their vision and mission that the church may have 50 people in it, but they go, we got to go back to this guy's church. Why? Have you heard the way this guy speaks? He is so on fire. It's, it's infectious. And I'm tired because all week I have to deal with people at work that are into office politics. They're boring. They, they can't stand their job. I want to be next to someone who has fire and passion. Give me an on fire, passionate guy who will get off the sidewalk into the street and you'll be an uncommon church. Romans 15, 1 and 3 says, Those of us who are strong and able in the faith need to step in and lend a hand to those who falter. Not just do what is most convenient for us. Strength is for service, not status. Each one of us needs to look after the good of the people around us, asking ourselves, how can I help? That's exactly what Jesus did. See, this text teaches us that the strength that we've been given is for service, not status. And what will frustrate you in ministry is when you think that people should just hear you because you're the pastor. But people need to know that when I come into your presence, that you are so passionate about what you're doing that I'll keep coming back. And passion is a result of conviction. I'm Latin. 
And so most Latins are just passionate by nature. Okay, and, and sometimes it's like you 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 would you you're, if you're not careful, you'll think that their passion is emotionalism, and it's not. A passion comes from conviction, and so what passion is, it's an emotional response to an inward conviction. That's why we get passionate about things. And the truth is, without passion, no one will buy into your vision. You can have the best vision, the best graphic. The best social media campaign, you can have the best talk on vision. But if the veins aren't coming out of the side of your neck, if, if there isn't some saliva coming out of you, how are you going to convince people who are so excited about making money that week why they should come back? Say passion. Number two, they have uncommon empathy. Uncommon empathy. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, he looked and he passed by on the other side. You know who the Levite is? The Levite is the disciple of the priest. And you know, those of you that know Jewish culture, the priests, when they walk, they walk in a row. And they walk kind of with a little cadence like this. If you'll ever see the way priests walk, they just kind of put their hands together and they walk like this on Jewish priests walk. And so the Levite, which is, he's the disciple. One day I want to be a priest, I want to be a priest. So he, he'll stand behind and he'll, he'll do the same thing. And that's cool. As long as the priest is showing the right emotional response to people in need. But what do you do when the priest starts discipling Levites to not show empathy to people who are hurting? Uncommon churches are uncommon because they have uncommon empathy. Look at the difference between sympathy and empathy in your notes. Sympathy is a sense of sadness when acknowledging another person's emotional hardship. Empathy is the ability to mutually experience the thoughts, emotions, and direct experiences of others. That's why Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The Levite and the priest do not have the, the, the capacity to show the right to show empathy to the man who was hurting. So what happened is exactly what the, what the priest did, the Levite did. And there is nothing worse than having churches that show their level of empathy is based on their schedule, their emotional state that week, how they feel about certain types of people, or how they feel or what they feel they're called to. And so what happens is we have nothing less than sympathy for people and very little, if any, empathy. And so what happens is when people come to our church, they need to know not that you care, but that you're willing to change your whole context on how you preach because you care that they get the message. When your church starts getting filled with unsafe people, they'll change you. They'll change the way you communicate. They'll change the way you address things because they'll sit there and tell you, what do you mean by that? Why do you say that? And why do you keep saying that? I've had people come to me after and say, what do you mean when you make statements like you have to lay it all down? I remember someone told me after I taught on Abraham laying down his son Isaac, you've got to lay it down for Jesus. And this person says, I don't want to kill my son for Jesus. And they told me, so what, and this person was very adamant. So what you're telling me is that I have to lay down my son for God? 
like Abraham did? And if not, then I'm not going to see the same blessing and favor? It's like, I don't understand that. Whoa. Whoa. I'm going to change the way I communicate that point. When you have empathy for people, you'll change the way you communicate. You'll ask yourself, am I really connecting with the new people that come to the church? Or am I just connecting with the Christians in my church? An uncommon church allows people to come in and from the pulpit, you can sense that everyone is aware of what is happening in the room. They're leaders that are being raised who show empathy. In other words, they're at the right places at the right time. Those moments of pain. Oh man, I'll get back to them. It's my day off. You know, their mother just died. I know, but you know, on a hard weekend and I just, I need time. You preached one service, dude. And you preached for 35 minutes. And so... Empathy is your ability to set aside what you feel for the moment to feel what other people feel. And empathy is the result of brokenness. Brokenness. When you're broken and you've experienced personal brokenness, you will feel people and you will respond to people. Have you ever been in the lobby and you're and someone's new and the wrong leader is talking to someone? Because they're not reading the person's body language. And you're like, stop that person, stop that person, stop that person. And you have to step in and you have to start talking. Because you realize this person was on a totally different wavelength. And the new person was like, thank you, I didn't know. They feel, and so it's at that moment where you realize, are, are you raising leaders who can step off the sidewalk? Or are you raising leaders who love to be on the sidewalk? I want you to see what this says. Um, Theodore Epps said this, A major hindrance to answered prayers, our inability to put ourselves in the place of others. It is easy to pray for someone and then forget him. Not realizing that he may be, what he may be experiencing. It is easy to criticize someone and say what we would, or what not to do if we were in his position. But if we have not been in such a situation, we do not know what we would do. The pain of not knowing people's pain is that you'll mishandle their situation. People don't leave churches. They leave leaders. People don't leave churches. They leave people that show the wrong emotional response to their need. And so before people were committed to the institution, they're not committed to the institution. They're committed to the people in the institution. But when a leader doesn't show empathy, what happens is that they tell that person, I'm not understood here. And you try to teach someone or turn someone around that feels misunderstood by your leaders. And if you have, as a pastor, you have to now go two levels down to talk to someone who's about to leave the church because the leader that you had overseeing them has no idea how to handle them, you'll realize something, that that's the reason why most people, they love the church, but they can't be there because that leader made them feel like they're not understood. 
And that's a result of not having empathy. But when you go to a church where you don't let people function from their status, but they function with the servant's heart, they'll slow down. Number three, the third sign of an uncommon church. Everyone say passion. passion. Say empathy. empathy. Number three, say uncommon discipleship. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed where he, and came where he was, when he saw him, the Bible says he had compassion. An uncommon church raises compassionate disciples who are marked by the ability to give and receive. Mark 3.14, Jesus chose 12 and called them apostles, and he wanted them to be with him. And he wanted to send them out to preach and to have authority, to have power to heal, sickness and force, demons out of people. John 15, 6 says, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I've chosen you and commissioned you to go and bear fruit. And he said, and your fruit will last because whatever you ask of my father, for my sake, he will give it to you. Discipleship happens when you raise people who could take on the condition of other people for Christ. The Samaritan was the true discipler because the Samaritan saw the need, but got emotionally involved in the need. He he wasn't satisfied with just feeling compassion for the man that was hurt. He had to engage him. That means he had to get off of his horse He had to use his oil. He had to use his wine. He had to take him to the hotel. Discipleship is when somebody gets emotionally and spiritually engaged in the life of a person until they are able to feed themselves, until Christ's character has been formed in them. The Samaritan is the classic example of the discipler who knows, I was saved to serve. I've I've been commissioned to go and make disciples. One of the greatest travesties of the church is when we are satisfied with believers and not disciples. One of the greatest dangers of public salvations is to assume that just because you have decisions that you have disciples. A decision for Christ does not mean you have a disciple. A person that has gotten converted does not mean that they're a committed disciple. You cannot say that you have a disciple unless you're being discipled. Discipleship is not a course in the church. It's the lifestyle of the church. Uncommon churches display uncommon discipleship. So here the Bible says, Jesus chose men, and from those men... They went out to do what Jesus was doing. So Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the what? The laborers are few. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out what? Laborers. Most people rebuke the devil and rebuke the devil who's holding back the harvest from their city. And God's like, "Uh, stop praying and stop rebuking the devil. I'm the Lord of the harvest. I'm in charge of the harvest of your church. And I'm telling you that the harvest of your church is directly linked to your ability to raise up laborers in the church. Laborers are not the dream team. Laborers are the people who will start small groups, who will bring those small groups to grow classes, 
Laborers are the ones that will make sure that those people not only get into grow class, but get into a dream team, but also get into a small group, but also make sure that they're tithers, also make sure that they're forming their character so they look like Christ, not just another version of you. And that doesn't happen in a class. It happens when it becomes a lifestyle. Uncommon churches are uncommon because they're not satisfied with salvations. They realize that if I don't raise disciples, then the church can only grow to its discipleship power. So Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but what's few is the laborers. The laborers are the disciple makers. The disciple makers are the ones that say, I'm not only going to get you into my small group, but I'm going to encourage you to one day start your own small group. But that process doesn't happen in a month. It happens over six months, a year. So uncommon churches, they're uncommon because the leaders, they walk you out. They walk it out with you. They process with you. It's not just, oh man, I'll see you next Sunday. Oh no, we're doing life this week. Oh no, I'm I'm involved in what's going on in your kids, within your marriage. I'm, I'm engaged in what's happening in your life. But that's because you're being discipled. You can't raise a disciple unless that disciple is being discipled. And what happens is we think that discipleship is a class, but it's not. It's a lifestyle. But to raise disciples, that means you have to be willing to be discipled. And what does it mean to be discipled? It means that you're under the leadership of someone else. That means someone else can can, can turn your clock. That means someone else can challenge you. Who do you have in your life that can call you on the carpet? If you don't have someone in your life that is discipling you, that can can correct you, that can form you, that can say, hold it, why are you doing that? Why are you handling your marriage that way? Why are you handling your finances that way? Why are you making these type of decisions? And what happens is that we want to entrust those types of people that don't want to be discipled to disciple people in the church. And then they reproduce what they are. And that's why what will happen is, you'll have someone, you know, they're getting involved in the church and they're excited, but they lose their excitement for the church, for serving. And now, to try to get them to make a deeper commitment, is like, hey bro, I'm already busy, man. I'll show up on Sunday. Love you. That's why when, when a person becomes a believer, at that moment, you've got to build discipleship in them. And you've got to raise up a culture of discipleship where everyone's like, no, I want to be led as I'm leading. It's getting so quiet in this Baptist church. <laughs> An uncommon church has uncommon passion, uncommon empathy, uncommon discipleship, uncommon generosity. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured his oil and wine on him, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he, he said to be departed and he took two denarii out and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend when I come again, I will, what does it say? Repay you. This is the classic example of a person that understands why generosity is important. It's expensive to be a Christian. You know the reason why you need to prosper? Because it's expensive being a Christian. 
That's the reason why your business needs to prosper. That's the reason why your job needs to prosper. Because it is expensive taking care of people. The greatest advice I got before I went left Santa Barbara, I had a client of mine, he was the president of this bank in Santa Barbara, a great Christian man, and he knew it was going to go start a church. And he said, Sergio, let me give you a, a word of advice. He said, to grow a ministry, he was part of Billy Graham's association. He said, you need two things. You need a big heart and a big wallet. And it's true. Had this man not been generous, he wasn't just financially generous, he was generous with his relationships. He went to the hotel and said, you know who I am. On the basis of who I am, give me credit for this person. And the Bible says that he said, and when I come back, I'm going to repay you. So it wasn't that just he was generous in the moment. He was willing to take his generosity to the point that I'm going to not only meet his present need, but whatever need comes after. Uncommon churches are churches where generosity is constantly expressed in the church. Constantly expressed. Where the church is always ready to meet immediate needs. Where the church is always ready to step in, to step up. But generosity in the church only happens when you are telling people and showing people what you're doing with the money. Where, you know, before you can get away with doing offerings and campaigns and you know, giving information, but nowadays people really want to know, where is the money going? What are you doing with the money? I remember God laid a challenge on our church to start a campus, and I talked about it in the book, um, inside of the prison of Tijuana. Like, Tijuana is very, it's crazy. People disappear in that city. So our church is right on the border. So we started a church in the city of Tijuana, and this person that got saved, well, the story is, a, a, a person in our church, their son was indicted for a crime that he didn't commit. He was really innocent too. He was, wasn't a fake story, he was really innocent. So for nine, no, for two years he was in a prison. Innocent. In Mexico you're guilty until proven innocent. And there is no due process there. Like you, it doesn't, you don't, you can't say, hold on, where's due process? I've been here for two weeks, I should see a judge. No, you're gonna see a judge when they're ready for you to see a judge. So this guy's been in the prison for over a year. He read my first book, Heart Revolution, because his mother gave it to him. The guy gets radically saved in the prison, like radically saved, like like Jesus saved. The social worker that has been serving that cell block noticed such a radical change in his life. And he asked, you know, she asked, what happened to you? Well, I read this book and she reads the book. And she realizes that her church is three offices away, three doors from her from her office. So she goes to the church, she gets radically saved. Okay. And I'll talk to you about how that happens and what she ends up going back to work. She works for the prison for the warden. The warden notices such a big change in her and says, what happened to you? Well I went to this guy's church and he goes, well if he could change you, he could change all these inmates. I have no idea what her lifestyle was or who she was. And that's an honest truth. Okay, that's real true. This is being recorded right now. Okay, I gotta really watch what I say. <laughs> so, so I go meet the warden, and he goes, "What would you like to do?" I'm like, "Oh man, I'd love to start a campus here." I thought, "Let me buy you a big TV. Maybe put three liters, four liters, put our videos on, and then you have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Be blessed." 
We've got a campus. He goes, you want to start a campus? He goes, oh, come here. And he takes me to this plot of dirt inside the prison. Right next to the main yard. Have you ever seen that movie with Mel Gibson called El Gringo? It's that prison that I'm in. That prison where like the cartel is. It's anything that happens in America, they get processed through this prison. So there's this piece of dirt next to the main yard where everyone comes out. And he goes, why don't you build your campus? They're like, I don't want to build a campus. I didn't come here to build a campus. And that's when God spoke to me. Sergio, let me break your rules. Let me break your rules. And that's where I got the idea that God is a paradox. He's the God who breaks the rules. Because he broke the rule in me. And I was telling him, I wanted to just come and put a screen. He says, I want you to put a building here. So I'm talking this, I'm talking about this because I had to go to our church and ask them to raise over $100,000 to build a church in which they would never see most of them. For people who can never tithe and give offerings. Hello, come on people. Let's keep this thing R-E-A-L. Let's keep it real. And, and I said, we need to do this because this is a God opportunity. And it challenged our church. I had people leave the church like he's raising money for these criminals. And, oh my goodness, we should be doing those things in the United States. So everyone, it was, it, was, it, was, it was awkward. I had people just say things to me. But uncommon churches break the rules. They go beyond the nomenclatures of the day. They go beyond their comfort zones. But I want you to see the video. A year later, we have now doing two services. We're on our way to being close to 300 people. Um, we just baptized our first 47 people. It was, they've never done a public baptism in this prison. Like never, never. So I want you to take a look at this video right now. Hope it inspires you to break some rules in your life.
I'm standing outside of the prison in Tijuana, and I'm so excited because today we're showing city love to the prison campus. For the first time, they're giving us permission to baptize all the men that have come to Christ inside the campus, the Cornerstone campus inside the prison. This is exciting because you know when the person gets baptized, the heavens open, and God declares, my beloved son, who I'm well pleased. And I'm grateful that son, instead of coming out of sales, today we're going to get baptized and we're going back to those sales knowing that God loves them, God is with them. Thank you so much for praying for us as we go in today. It's a big day. We're showing city love in Tijuana today. Come on, somebody. came from when I had that experience. In fact, when you buy one of these books, the publisher gives me a special discount so I can give away a free book to every inmate. So I'm on a mission right now to give away 2,000 books to these guys. That's how many inmates there is. And I really believe that um, we're working on the lights. Okay. Um, I really believe that a church has to be marked by something. There has to be something about a church that separates it from everyone else. It's so easy to want to be like everyone else and realize that there's a unique fingerprint, a mark that God's given you as a church. And you've got to capture that. But it's always going to take you beyond your comfort zone. You can't allow yourself to, to think that God lives just in the parameters of where you think and what you feel. You have to let God break the rules in you. Because you have rules in you. You have rules that tell you people like you can't grow a church. Or the city that you're in, we're in a city, we're in a national city, which is about 65,000 members. 65, I think, in members, right? 65,000 people in San Diego. It is the most crime-ridden city of all San Diego. And yet, one of the fastest growing churches in America comes out of one of the most, well, unassuming places. People drive from the north, south, east, and west to come to our church. And, and the reason why is because your city is not the problem. The, the community you're in is not the problem. The people in the chairs are not the problem. Your sound system is not the problem. Your building is not the problem. The problem is you're not letting God break the rules inside of you. And he wants to take you beyond you. But you won't, you won't understand this until you let him break the rules in you. So I talk about societal rules that you have to break in your city. 
You have to look at the nomenclatures of your city. What rules has your city set up? And you have to break through them. Because if you don't, then you'll never come above and out in the city. You'll be like another church in the community trying to be cool and hip. But you guys remember this. Nobody cares about that anymore. Nobody cares. They don't care how cool you look. What they want to know is what is inside this church that can help me become a better person, get closer to God, and make a difference in the world. And so sometimes we have societal rules. You have you have you know rules that you have in, you've espoused about what a church should be and what kind of pastor you should be. I'll never forget when I was frustrated that our church wasn't growing. And God told me, Sergio, stop being the pastor you want to be and start being the pastor you're supposed to be. The city needs you to be. And when I started becoming the pastor that the city needed to be, we launched a campus on the, on the, in La Jolla. We have a surf ministry. We have a ministry out there. And we launched the campus in Tijuana. We launched different campuses because we realized it wasn't good enough to just pack out a church, have thousands of people come but not, in, not engage those people and empower those people and activate them to go and start other ministry. And so what happens is if you keep letting the rules of what you know church should be stop you, you realize something. You're missing the very mark and the uniqueness that God's called you to be. And it takes courage. You won't just break the rules in you. It's a good title. It's a great book. But this thing will challenge you because you don't realize how many rules... How many vows, how much, how much, the type of mentality that you have, how it limits you from being an effective leader. But when you let God break the rules inside of you, the circumference of your influence will grow. Because ultimately, that's what has to happen in you. See, every leader has a magnetic draw. Every church has a magnetic draw. The Samaritan had a greater magnetic draw than the priest. The priest is the guy that's in church every Sunday on the worship team, singing elevation psalms. <laughs> the priest is the guy who's like in the lobby, drinking his coffee, super cool. What's up, man? And yet the person that had more influence was the Samaritan. You know who the Samaritan is? is the one who is half-breed. He's, 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 he's Jew and Gentile. He's two different cultures. He's, he's the one who the Jews can't stand because they're not full Jewish and the Gentiles don't know what to do with because they're part Jewish. So the Samaritan in the story is the uncommon element. It's the, he's the paradox. He's the paradox. He's the one that you never thought you wouldn't expect to break the rules. But he broke his own rule. Okay, he was obviously wealthy because he had a horse, he had a donkey, he had oil, he had wine, he was going somewhere. He had credit with the Marriott Hotel. So this guy wasn't a guy of low means. He obviously had influence, but the truth is, is that the priest had more influence because he had influence with God. And he had influence in the society. But what good is it if you're another pastor, another leader in the church, another Christian who loves their title, loves what they stand for, but there's no, there's no essence about your life that makes people take a second look at you. The Samaritan was of two cultures. And if you know, if you realize 
who the Samaritan is in the story, it's Jesus. Jesus is the Samaritan. The Levites and the priests were the Levites and the priests of the day. The conversation that Jesus is having is with the lawyer. The lawyer was the friend of the priest. If you understand the way the Jewish system was built, the lawyer had both a spiritual knowledge and the knowledge of the law. So he had intellectual advantage over people. That's why people hated the lawyers because the lawyers could tell you what laws you broke in the before man, but they would also tell you what laws you broke before God. So the lawyers always had an in with the priest and the priest would buy out the lawyer if they really wanted to get someone in trouble. So the lawyers were corrupted. And so the lawyer said, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, oh, you want to know? Let me tell you a story. And he goes, you know your cronies, your buddies, the priests? Well, he's the one that walked on the other side. And the moment Jesus said, but a Samaritan, that Jewish lawyer got mad. And Jesus starts breaking down who the Samaritan is and what he does. And he looks at the lawyer and he says, so which one showed compassion? Your friends or the one that you didn't expect? And he presents the paradox to him. And what he doesn't realize, the lawyer, is that Jesus is the Samaritan. He's both the son of man and the son of God. He was walking on earth in his humanity at the simultaneously in his divinity. Jesus is the Samaritan. He's the one who understands heaven, but understands the pain of those on earth. He's the one that's accepted from heaven, but despised and rejected by man. He came to his own, but his own received him not. Jesus is the Samaritan, and Jesus is the one that says, and whatever you do, whatever you do, when I come back, I'm going to repay you. He's the one that when he comes back, he's repairing, he's, he's repaying families, ministries, businessmen, businesswomen. He says, I'm going to repay you, I'll repay you, I'll repay you, I'll repay you, I'll repay you. Because what he's teaching us is that generosity always is repaid by God. But if your generosity is nothing more than the generosity of the priest, that's why your church won't do anything uncommon. When I was building this campus, I was so frustrated because all my friends were starting campuses like in Newport Beach, <laughs> Los Angeles, all these cool places, New York, Miami. And I was like, God, why do I have to go to a campus in a prison, man? Come on, God. But can I tell you, it was my saving grace. I wrote this book, The God Who Breaks the Rules, because when you become one of the fastest growing churches in America consecutively, and you're speaking around the world, it is so easy to forget why you were called into the ministry. And if you're not careful, you'll miss the opportunity to know the God of the paradox. You'll, you, you won't understand that your life right now is in the midst of a paradox. And you'll get mad at God. God, why isn't this working out? God says, because the, I'm doing this on purpose in your life. And God is always in the midst of the, you know, a paradox is something that doesn't make sense until it's investigated. Then it makes all the sense in the world. Like most of the things that are happening in your life, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense where you're not seeing the growth. You're doing everything that you're supposed to do. And God says, you're absolutely right. And I'm not allowing it to happen. 
Because I'm growing you first before I grow your church. Why don't I have the leaders I'm supposed to have? Because God says, I'm growing you first before you can grow leaders. And so many times when, when God has us in that paradox, like he had this lawyer, we miss out on the whole purpose of being used. And it's for salvations. Can we explain this to you? I wrote this in, the, in your outline from my, the chapter 8, falling forward. The church should be a library of God's grace. There should be stories of uncommon people in every church because this is the church God is raising. It's a church that has embraced the theology of stumbling to celebrate the most imperfect people, not the most popular. Uncommon churches who follow the paradoxes of God look at the ones who are struggling the most, not the least. Your best leaders will be the ones that struggle the most and who stumble into their destiny. In the book, I, I, there's a chapter in here, I think it's, it's that very, it's, it's chapter 8, it's called Falling Forward. And Falling Forward, I quote, Every stumble is not a fall, and every fall does not mean failure. Dramatic falls can sometimes end up in the most dramatic victories, because when you understand, when you have a theology for stumbling, you realize that most, that happen, most of what happens in your life and in your ministry, you stumble into it. And while you're stumbling, you, you get frustrated because you think stumbling is a, is a sign of weakness when in fact to God, stumbling is a sign of strength as long as you're moving forward and you're stumbling. Mm-hmm. And most people don't understand that your ministry grows because you're failing as you go forward. Mm-hmm. And then you strike success. People, Most people think that ministries succeed because everything that they do is smart. And the truth is, for the one smart decision that you heard about on social media, there's about 15 dumb decisions that they made. And so we celebrate, too many times in the church we celebrate the strong and we don't see that the future is in the stumbler of your church. So if I find a person in our church who keeps coming to church even though they have an addiction, I'm like, oh my God, it's the best leader I'm going to have. All of my pastors, they're either drug addicts, ex-cons, divorcees, crazy people, because nobody, but if you see them now, they're the most theologically inclined, the most compassionate, and the most passionate for soul winning. So you have to find the stumblers, but see, you won't find the stumblers if, if all you're looking for is people who are easy to disciple. You won't find them. The gold is in the stumblers. Show me one that keeps stumbling, keeps coming to church. I'm telling you that is your best leader. Because if they can forge their soul to come to church through their tribulation, even though they're not in ministry, no one's considering them. When you put them on the platform, they've already built, God has already built inside of them the ability to sustain ministry through different seasons. So that's why an uncommon church is filled with people who you would never expect. I write about it in the book. I talk about, there's a chapter in chapter 6 called Who Wants the Oil? And in this chapter, I talk about how David was selected among all of his brothers because David was the only one who wanted the oil. Seven of his brothers who, who went through the right of purification, who socially qualified, but none of them spiritually qualified. Only David spiritually qualified, yet he was the only one not invited to the party because he was the one who wanted the oil. You have to be the type of person who wants it. 
The Holy Spirit knows who wants the oil. So seven brothers were overlooked. They all looked good. That's where you get the verse, God, man sees up that word, God sees the heart. Because the oil passed over the best looking guy. And he ends up with the boy that's dirty in the field. Now some theologians believe that David was an illegitimate son because he wasn't asked to come to the table with the prophet. Because that would have been an insult to the father. So they kept the illegitimate son out. And so David is out in the dirt, full of dirt with the sheep and the goats and everything else. And before you know it, David is asked to come to the table. But if you read Samuel, the Bible says that all seven sons went through the rite of purification, which is a long process to sit with the prophet. David comes running in dirty. He doesn't even know the prophet, doesn't even go through his rite of purification. And the oil says, this is the one. There are leaders that are soiled in your church right now. They want more of God than the ones that have gone through your rites of purification, gone through all your spiritual hoops. Be careful for the ones who you think got it because they look good, they sound good, but the truth is they don't want the oil. It's usually the soiled one, the one that knows I have no business being here, but if they'll have me, I'll be here. Yeah. And your church is filled with them. They're the dirty ones. They're the ones like they're all soiled. They're all dirty. I write in the book, you don't need a flawless past to have a favored future. What was birthed in David's first anointing, died in his second anointing, was later resurrected in his third anointing. <laughs> When, when you know the God who breaks the rules, you'll learn this about yourself. There are things in you that have not been unlocked. David was anointed three times. And God had to keep breaking David's rules. David kept fighting God. And God kept breaking down his rules to the point he was ready. God wants uncommon churches. Who when the preacher gets up to preach, there is a fire and a passion in their voice that is infectious. There is an empathy in their messages that immediately draws people in. And yet at the same time, there is a process of discipleship that gives everyone an opportunity to thrive in the church. There's a spirit of generosity where at any minute we're ready to go and give. We did this thing in our church called City Love. If you follow me on social media, you'll see what we did. We launched close to 200 small groups every week for five weeks to serve the city every week. Wow. So they were creative. They did so. They went to the military bases. They served at the beach. They served cleaning up the streets. They served the homeless. They went to schools. They, they, you know, they, they went to unique places, juvenile halls. But, and the beauty of it was is that the church got so mobilized that they didn't want to stop. I had to tell them to stop. Because life group leaders like, come on, we want to keep doing this. I know you need to go back to having your small group. Because this is what happens when the church gets on fire for serving other people. It creates in people a longing for the gospel. When you have to preach psychological principles to people to motivate them, it's because they, they, they've fallen out of love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've had to watch my sermons and see how much of my sermons am I just 
philosophically trying to motivate people and you lose the essence of the gospel. When people lose the essence of the gospel, they become normal churches that are good with good people, good Christians. They have Christian dogs, Christian cats, Christian kids, Christian cars, and it's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not an uncommon church. We built an uncommon church in a city where no one expected it. We built a church, and I say we, our team did, because we decided we were not going to let the city define us, uh, people's past to define them, the fear of the future to define us, but we were going to keep throwing ourselves into the unknown. But you won't do that unless you let God break your rules. You have more rules in you than you think. You do. If you study the Bible, every major leader had rules. John the Baptist, I can't baptize you. You should baptize me. Really? You need to decrease, John, so he can increase. Every leader had rules. Peter, I'm not going to preach to the Gentiles. I will never eat anything unclean. Then you're not ready because you can't break your rule. I've got to go find a guy and break the rules to bring them in to break your rules called Paul who will rebuke you in Galatians chapter 1 while you keep showing favoritism to Jews over the Gentiles. So I call Paul who was the Pharisee of Pharisees break his own rule. You're kicking against the goads guy. Now he falls in love with Jesus. No one believes that he's truly converted because he was killing the church. God breaks the rules. And there are still those stories in the church. There's always a Peter who wants to keep the rules, and there's always a Paul who wants to break the rules. <laughs> An uncommon church is filled with people who understand this. That's why every opportunity I get, doesn't matter where I preach, is I talk about the God who breaks the rules. Because you know what America needs more than ever? God to break the rules. It's for people to fall back in love with Jesus in the local church. To say, I love church because every time I go there, they're challenging me to go above and beyond. They're forcing me to get out of myself. They're helping me to see that the world is bigger than the world that I live in. But that won't happen if you don't let God break your rules. You have to give Him permission. So today, I want to open it up for questions, comments, or confessions. <laughs> Anyone have questions, raise your hand. Can we give up for Can we give your hand like that? between breaking the rules and keeping a structure that will continue to operate efficiently. Yeah. You know, principles don't change, but methods do. The principles of God are consistent. You'll reap what you sow. But the methods in which God uses to grow the church will always change. Will always change. So you, you always want to remember that, that God is consistent and inconsistent at the same time. He is consistently inconsistent. Does that make sense? 
And so the administrators are going to be administrators. And their job is to keep the line. But your job is to raise the line. Raise the line on the church. If not, you'll have a stagnant church that's static. But you need a church that's dynamic. And the church becomes dynamic when you break the rules of what we've always done. And we realize, hold it, we're not hearing where there's life. If you look throughout your church and you see where there's life, you realize most people are trying to kill it than breathe on it. Find that leader whose small group is blowing up and the first thing people do is, what's he doing? Are you sure he's doing everything right? Because the first thing we want to do is go to the tree of knowledge of good and evil instead of going to the knowledge of the tree of life. It's the first thing we love to do. We always want to know, what we always want to have the knowledge of good and evil before we just go to the tree of life first. Another question. I, go ahead. So you talked about uncommon discipleship, and I thought that point was really powerful. Um, for Cornerstone, what are some markers or systems that you guys have used for the discipleship factor to be uncommon, or just some brief descriptions of what you would call uncommon discipleship and what you do in your church and your campuses? So I meet with my I meet with core a core group of my small group leaders every week, and they meet with their small group leaders every week. So there is a personal commitment from me, the senior pastor, to disciple. It is not a department in my church. I am the discipler. So if you follow me on my social media, one day I'll be with this well-known pastor, and the next day I'll be with one of my church members in a random place because I'm modeling to our church all the time. I'm always discipling. So I break, our church breaks the rules because it starts with me. It doesn't start with an assistant pastor. And so for my small group of men that I'm discipling, I put on them to disciple their men and women every week so that whoever's discipling has to be discipled. And that's uncommon. We usually have discipleship as a program, go do it, but no one is discipling the discipler. So that's why they burn out. You can only get out of your overflow. And that's where you lose the life. It's a great question. Appreciate it, big question. So I just have a question now. Being a pastor of a multicultural church, and specifically Spanish and English, um, what's the biggest challenges that you face in that? And then what have you done to overcome it? Well, the biggest challenge that we experienced in Spanish, now I think we have about, with, with our Spanish, we have 500, 750, we probably have like almost 1,500 just in Spanish in our church. Okay, the change happened in me. The, okay, I, I had to learn Spanish. I know my name is Della Mora, everyone thinks, you know, everyone thinks every Latin knows Spanish, it's not true. Okay, I'm gonna be honest with you. Just because I'm Latin doesn't mean I speak Spanish. Okay? I was the number one skateboarder in my town. I was a kid, man. I was like, okay. I was like, okay. But I moved to San Diego because my pastor told me to and I'm obedient. And I just realized all these people speak Spanish. And I was like, (sighs) And so I just started learning. I started learning. Now I can fluently preach in both. I can think in Spanish. 
glory, hallelujah, because there was a major chaos and confusion on the stage. Because I'd be like, what happened was the only way I believe that a, a ministry can fully flow in Spanish and English is it has to start with the senior leader. Like, I do not let English marginalize Spanish. I used to. My leaders are here, I can't lie. I used to treat Spanish like, oh man, you guys, figure it out. Hey bro, we gotta... Oh yeah, 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 yeah. we'll get to that. Yeah. Now, we do a national conference in English called the Heart Revolution with major speakers, but we do, same year, a national conference in Spanish with major speakers. And it's crazy. But it's my commitment to both. So I keep the great A speakers in, in Spanish, like, like guys who have like 50,000 members in their church. Pastors who are like leading. Like, one pastor has 7,000 small groups. He's 44 years old. He has 42,000 people that are in those small groups. He's got 65,000 people in his church. The guy's 44 years old. Hello. Okay, it's crazy. So, so you bring those guys and just unleash them. Yeah. And so what it's doing is it's challenging. So for the first time this year in Spanish, most of these guys also now know English. So we had English people come. And so when they would preach in Spanish, the speaker that was next would have a session in English. For the first time, English people wanted to come to the Spanish conference. Because can I tell you something? In America, I was part of a study with Fuller Seminary for two years on, the, I don't know if you know this book called Growing Young. It's a book that Fuller Seminary put out on the future of the church. I was part of their cohort for two years. And they discovered the fastest growing churches in America are Hispanic churches. But see how quiet it is in here? And you know what their answer was to the American church? The American church has to become more of a family and not corporate. So Hispanics are like, dude, we do that like it's in our blood, man. How could you not be family, fool? What's up? And the, the largest churches are in Latin America right now. They are the largest. Brian Houston went to Cash Luna's church. And he told Cash Luna, I have never been in a church like yours in the world. Because this guy built a $110 million facility with cash in Guatemala. There's no one's building like this. There is a move of God in Latin America. And I'm so glad that I learned Spanish. <laughs> so that help? Yeah. How do you like, um, you talked a lot about like going after needs and kind of trying to meet people's needs without burning out and without losing sight of your like, calling and vision. Everything flows from the river in you. So as long as I can let you go out and serve the homeless, serve in Juno Hall, as long as every week I'm discipling you. If I'm pouring into you, and when, when my leaders meet with the leaders, I tell them, you've got to speak into them, not to them. You've got to impart life. So imagine every week you meet with me, and every week I'm talking to you like this. 
Okay, Carolyn, you know what you have to do this week? Okay, Carolyn, look at this week. I want you to look at this in your text and read this and pray about this. Because I really believe God wants to expand your influence. So you're sitting there getting poured into, right? Right? So when you go out to serve, you're just getting out of your overflow. But if I let you serve and you're doing well, like the squeaky wheel gets the oil, and I come over here and I start working with you guys because she's good, I made the greatest mistake in the kingdom. Feed the feeders. <laughs> Feed the feeders. Feed the feeders. But we don't, we're not taught that. We're taught the feeders are good, they're self-motivated. Now let me go work with this jerk over here that doesn't want to do anything and think that if I give him what I gave her, that that's going to work. It's not true. Until he gets the revelation that he's hungry for it, like she's hungry for it, it doesn't matter how many hours I spend with you. So feed the feeders, feed the feeders, feed the feeders. So I'm not going to let you minister and burn out, because if I do, it's my responsibility to keep you fed. That's called discipleship. But that starts at the head. Like, my wife, I pour into her, I pour into my kids. I have six kids, and four of them are married to pastors, and they're all serving campuses in our church. Like, we call it like a priesthood family. Like, my <laughs> wife preaches, she's overseeing the campus, and we're all engaged. But that's because we're feeding the feeders. I'm sorry, I didn't know about that. As a feeder who's not necessarily Because the person above you is not interested in discipling. That could be the problem. When the person above you is not interested in discipling, they'll let you go and give out without giving in. And that's why people burn out. So you have to say to the person above you, I need you to disciple me. You have to be that transparent and cut them at the heart that way. But I want you guys to get the book because you're going to help me get prisoners' books. So don't just buy one. Buy a couple. Make an investment, people. Come on, somebody. Don't get motivated. Don't just cry for the video. Help me reach those guys. All right. Well, let's give it up for Pastor Sergio. Amazing. Come on. Thank you. Like you said, a book or several copies, and you'll be available to sign them. So we love you guys.